again want to say good morning and welcome to Santa Barbara Community Church. It is good to be together. My name is Benji. I serve as one of the pastors here. And as you can see on this slide, today we are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it there. We are nearing the time, the end of our time in Ecclesiastes, and I hope you have enjoyed it. I have certainly enjoyed it, despite the sometimes somber tone. And we will wrap up our time in Ecclesiastes next week and get to the end of the book. So I know our 5th through 12th graders are here this morning. Where are you? Wow. Um, One raised her hand. One whooped. Okay. So this is going to be, that's funny, literally it says, I'm thrilled you're in worship with the rest of your church family this morning, but you're not thrilled, so I'm just going to talk to you anyway. Um, I have a question for you, students, as we start here this morning. I want to know if you have a favorite book series. Just shout it out. No, shout, shout means shout. Harry Potter. That's it? Okay, you've, all right. Goodness gracious. All right, you know what? Let's just pray and go home. Um, Okay, so how about this? How about I tell you about one of mine when I was a kid, um, since that's what's next anyway. Um... When I was in elementary school, there was no hotter commodity on library day than these books right here. Choose your own adventure books. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Woo! (laughs) Gen Xers having a great time right now. So... Maybe you're old enough to remember, but these books, they, they were built on really this tension, these moments of tension where you would reach a key juncture in this story and you'd be presented with some kind of a decision, right? So it would say at the bottom of the page something like, if you step out onto the rickety bridge, turn to page 12. Or if you search for another path around the jungle river gorge, turn to page 17, only to get to page 17 and discover that there is no other path around the jungle river gorge and your decision cost you precious time hiking through the humid jungle where you encountered an aggressive pack of gibbons that stole your compass and emptied your canteen and ate your remaining rations and left you so malnourished that when you later slipped and found yourself clinging to the side of the jungle river gorge, you were powerless to pull yourself up and while you hung there in the distance, you saw your bitterest rival crossing the apparently not so rickety bridge to find the stash of gold that was your only hope of chartering a flight home to a warm bowl of minestrone. good to have a fallback. I could write these if, anyhow. (laughs) Those books worked so well because the reader didn't know what was ahead after each choice, right? It would have been really not a good concept if all of that was spelled out immediately. The implications of each choice weren't always clear. And in what we're about to read in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, Kohelet treats life under the sun a little bit like a choose-your-own-adventure book, and he offers wisdom for the reality that it is not always possible to know what is ahead on the unpredictable road of life. And so, are you in Ecclesiastes 11? I hope so. We have a briefer-than-usual passage of Scripture today, and if you are able, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, but feel free to... Follow along in whichever translation is open in front of you. Ecclesiastes 11 says, Ship your grain across the sea. 
After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Well, last week, Mike mentioned that his passage was kind of like the junk drawer of Ecclesiastes, with all sorts of random things just shoved in together. Well, if last week was the junk drawer, this week is a little bit more like the fortune cookies of the book. There are so many short and cryptic sayings here. It's like Kohelet is channeling his inner Yoda. Did you notice? Whether a tree falls to the south or the... So, scholar Trimper Longman says that this section contains some of the most difficult, though provocative, verses in the book. But I want to say, despite the initial difficulty, if we dig just a little bit below the surface, I think we're going to encounter some very practical wisdom for living life in a world of uncertainty. So here's the Sparknotes summary of verses 1 through 6. The wise person responds to the uncertainty of life with both industry and humility. The wise person responds to the uncertainty of life with both industry and humility. So let's work our way through these verses and see how Kohelet supports that thesis statement, beginning with the wisdom of industry. Now, before we dive into this first theme, an irony alert. When I was the age of the students in the room, industrious was not an adjective commonly applied to me. One of my high school baseball coaches once gave me the not-at-all-flattering nickname, Mr. Lackadaisical. (laughs) My best subject in school was procrastination. I occupied a bedroom that never had anything put away. My backpack was a black hole of uncompleted homework assignments, newly collected baseball cards, old lunch remnants. And many a report card came home slapped with the charge, doesn't apply himself. Usually alongside the dubious twin claims of talks too much and too social, which I still don't believe are a thing. So I digress. The point here, the point here is that I recognize the irony that it is me who is standing before you to outline our passage's insistence that a life of wisdom is marked by industry. But this is the most obvious theme of these verses. It comes up in verses 1, 2, 4, and 6. So scholar after scholar, commentator after commentator insists that verse 1 of our passage poses a huge interpretive challenge. It poses a translation challenge as well, but even more so an interpretive challenge. And that challenge is probably best demonstrated by a quick review of some of the translations that may be open in front of you. So for example, the NIV that I just read says, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. The ESV says, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, send your bread on the surface of the waters, for after many days you may find it. And the net, the New English translation says, send your grain overseas, for after many days you will get a return. So while the ESV and the HCSB conjure up images of like a leisurely afternoon at Lake Los Carneros, casting your bread upon the waters, 
with apparently apathetic ducks that will leave it alone for many, many days. The other translations, the NIV and the Net Bible, seem to refer instead something to more like the Long Beach Harbor. Furthermore, there's a question here about, does this verse offer a certainty or a possibility? So is Kohelet saying, you will, or is he saying, you may? Now, in English, that seems really straightforward, and yet the Hebrew verb tense here leaves open either possibility. So what is going on in verse 1? What exactly is Kohelet saying to his readers? Many see here a call to generosity and even charity, and they, those are best captured by translations 2 and 3, while many others see this as a call to wise business practice reflected in translations one or four. Some see this as a promise of success if you simply pull the right levers in life, while others say this is just a prudent response to the unpredictable odds of life. So with all of that, all those valid possibilities, here's my loosely held opinion on what Kohelet intends in verse one. He says, recognizing the risks involved, and even without the certainty of good ROI, Nonetheless, it is wise to engage in intentional business investment through shipping and trade. Now, I think this interpretation is almost required by the unavoidable fact that as so often happens, verse 1 is followed by verse 2. Would you look again at verse 2? He says, invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Now, with this one verse, I think Kohelet gives us the interpretive key to the whole passage. He insists that the wise person should invest not only wisely, but broadly, because we live in a volatile world in which you do not know what kind of disaster may come upon you. And if that's your outlook on the world, it doesn't track to suggest in verse 1, for example, that one should just throw their resources around without a game plan, just hope for the best. And by now, you're likely asking yourself, who cares? Right? Who cares about Mediterranean supply chains? What is this, ancient Near Eastern shark tank? Who cares? Well, Kohelet goes on in verse 4 to reveal why this matters. Because one possible response to the uncertainties and the unpredictability of life is the foolish path of complete inaction and paralysis. Would you look at verse 4? Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. What Kohelet does here is he pictures an ineffective farmer who is so concerned about not knowing what the weather is going to bring that they completely forsake the responsibility in front of them. They completely forego the task that has actually been entrusted to them. And in verse 6, Kohelet insists that for the wise person, it is the very uncertainty of life that motivates faithful and industrious work. Verse 6, Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. And please, don't mistake this for some American middle-class values import onto the faith to build up good, industrious people. No. From the opening pages of Scripture, we see that even in the idealized world of Eden, God's image bearers were made for and called to meaningful work. So in Genesis 1, 
the creation of humankind, we read this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That is a call to work. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. From the start, God intended for his people to bear his image through the work of ruling and cultivating and creating and subduing. And this doesn't change for us simply because we now live east of Eden. And importantly, this mandate for image bearers to use their lives to cultivate God's world, it's not just an Old Testament thing. You may remember that Jesus himself told a rather startling story about a a master who came after a long journey to settle accounts with his servants. And upon the master's return, those who had spent their lives to further the master's interests, well, they heard, well done, good and faithful servant. But the one servant who allowed the anxiety and uncertainty of life to drive him to inaction, he met a far more terrifying end. And Jesus introduces this story with a phrase that suggests it's not just a story. He says, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Friends, we don't always know what will happen when we turn to page 17 in life. But we do know that if we allow that unknowing to result in inaction now, if we allow that uncertainty to prevent us from good kingdom engagement now, we are bound to be unprepared for what we discover once we finally arrive around the corner of life. The wise respond to the unknown of life with industry now for the purposes of God. But that's not all, as this passage also calls the wise to a posture of humility. So before we dive into this second theme, an irony alert. When I was the age of the students in this room, humility was not an adjective commonly applied to me. I lived with an outsized confidence in my own competence in most things and would have gladly told you about it when given the opportunity. Anyone who knew me when I was a teenager would probably choose the words cocky and obnoxious as the most fitting description. Fortunately, there's only one person here today who knew me as a teenager. Please don't ask her, because while she is my wife, she's also honest, and she will tell you stories I don't want you to know. (laughs) So as before, I recognize the irony that I am now the one standing before you to outline our passage's insistence that a life of wisdom is marked by humility, but my hang-ups notwithstanding, that's what we see. In verse 3, Kohelet reminds his readers that life is not only unpredictable— but also largely beyond our control. Clouds fill up and trees fall down apart from any input or direction from us. And furthermore, when the clouds empty their contents, it may suddenly flood, an all-too-familiar event in the dry landscape of ancient Israel. And when trees fall, they may come crashing down without prejudice upon any structures that once cherished the shade that tree used to provide. Now, this observation is very on-brand for Kohelet, isn't it? By now, we've become used to his particular type of lethargy here. And yet, the nature of this observation changes when we read it in combination with the verse 5. Would you look again at verse 5? As you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God. 
the maker of all things. Now, I don't know many people who like having really limited information in life. Most of us would like more about most things, wouldn't we? I am notorious in our home for pestering Greta for details on social plans long before any such specifics should be reasonable. Well, like, like what, what time? What time does it start? How are we going to get there? What are we going to drive? What should I wear? And she's like, it's in four weeks. I don't know. I'm just telling you to put it on your calendar. So often, the, the unknown, it fully ignites my own control issues, and it prompts me to anxiously search for certainty and details. And yet, you'll notice that Kohelet seems to have a different approach. He concludes that though none of us fully knows the path of the wind, none of us fully understands the way a child grows in the womb, there is one who does, and he is God the maker of all things. And the distinction couldn't be any more obvious for us. Kohelet is serving up humility on the rocks by contrasting the limitations of creatures with the unlimited creator. And for any who are not afflicted with an Icarus complex, the end result is recognizing the gap between ourselves and God and seeing deep humility grow. So earlier, James reminded us of Psalm 8. He mentioned that the glory of the Lord and the wonders of the heavens made David feel small. Well, in my own life, more often than not, when I lose accurate sight of who God is and who I am, well, the result is growth in hubris rather than humility. And I suspect I'm not alone in that. And yet, as I've seen over and over again, without humility, it is impossible to see God for who he is and to come to him for what only he can provide. And in our passage this morning, Kohelet reminds us that the limits of our knowledge have a unique power to grow humility in our hearts. And this may be the part where you feel the objection welling up inside of you that we live in a very different world than Kohelet's. So way back on June 11th, We were in Ecclesiastes 2, and Mike reminded us that we live in a world that is saturated by information. Do you remember? He encouraged us to get in groups and to even use our phones to find out the answers to the following questions. The square root of 759, the capital of Bangladesh, and the year the Santa Barbara mission was built. And his point was that we live in a world full of information, but often short on wisdom. You may recall. Well, as his smartphone challenge demonstrated, we do. We live in a world of information, information that is often easily at our thumb tips. And in such a world, it may be easy to think that we have somehow transcended the sad situation that Kohelet found himself stuck in. After all, today, science has allowed us to know both the path of the wind and how the body is formed in a mother's womb. So haven't we moved beyond this kind of unsophisticated pre-modern mindset in verse 5? In a word, no. Kohelet uses these two examples to represent things difficult to know. But even those who know these things still don't know all things. And in the biblical story, one of the most obvious features of the gulf between creator and creation is the limits of knowledge. So, for example, the prophet Isaiah asks this, Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? He obviously anticipates the answer 
nobody. Or, as we've already seen in our time in Ecclesiastes, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Kohelet says, our imaginations, our information, our knowledge is limited. So no wonder that Paul would write to the early Christians in Rome, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? As with David in Psalm 8 for Paul in Romans 11, God's majesty is amplified by our limitations. Limitations on display in a phrase as simple and often as costly as, I don't know. Which is always the truth when we consider not merely the information of life, but what awaits on page 17 in the story of our lives. So about our passage, Ellen Davis writes this. This section is about the grace of not knowing what lies ahead, for good or for ill. The grace of not knowing frees us from the compulsion to control our situation, to secure our own advantage in everything, and kick ourselves or curse God when we guess wrong. Kohelet is preparing us for the gospel imperative, do not worry about your life. Like Kohelet, we live in a world of unforeseen challenges. For him, it was the uncontrollable seas of verse 1, the various natural disasters of verse 2, the unpredictable rains and falling trees of verse 3, the uncertain business ventures of verse 6. And our world is not so different. Sometimes page 17 brings us an unimaginable diagnosis. Betrayal from the most painful of places. A sudden layoff or a bitterly untimely death. And knowing that the unknowable road may feature unbearable pain can make it seem impossible to ever not worry about your life. But Jesus' teaching that begins with the command, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, well, it ends with these words, So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Notice the combination of industry and humility here in Jesus' words. We can be freed from worry and freed to work for God's kingdom purposes only when we rightly recognize who our lavish Father truly is and confess in humility our need for what only He can give us. We are creatures with such a craving for control that when we find that we live in a world that is not subject to our whims, that will not bow down to our demands that it reveal its end game, we may be at times tempted to shut down in apathy, to overwork in absurdity, or to shake our fists at heaven in agony. Or, as Kohelet and Jesus recommend, we can cultivate lives marked by industry and humility, knowing that we have been given one life to use for the glory of the giver of life. And as we choose the road that is marked by both industry and humility, we are choosing to walk in the example given to us in Jesus himself. So in his passionate prayer to the Father on the night of his arrest, Jesus said this, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your sons so that your, glor- your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus paints a picture of industry, that God's will and God's purposes were worth serving, and he did it at the cost of his life. And so in a letter to the church in Philippi, the apostle Paul reminds us that Jesus' life is the ultimate model of humility. And he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you are a part of the family of God by faith in Christ, the pattern of that family life is the one who resolutely worked for and pursued the will of God and who did so with unparalleled humility. And even more stunning than that is that unlike us with the Choose Your Own Adventure book that is our lives, Jesus knew exactly what was ahead of him and he chose to walk the road anyway. So the author of Hebrews puts it this way, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Which means that even when we don't know what's up ahead on the road of life, we know who is already ahead of us. The author and perfecter of our faith, the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ. And so week by week, we come to a meal that reminds us of both Jesus' industry and his humility that he came to do the work of reconciling people like you and me to a holy God. And he came in the humility that allowed his body to be pierced and his blood to be shed and poured out for the forgiveness of sins to accomplish God's plan. If your sins have been covered by the blood of this Savior, you are invited to come to a table of testimony, a table of thanksgiving, a table of rededication. At this table, we ask the Spirit to help us to walk in Jesus' example of industry and humility, to give us the grace to trust him when the road ahead is unknown, and to make us more and more into people who walk in wisdom. We will have prayer teams on the right and the left and in the back, and I want to encourage you. I know for many of you, the road of life has brought unforeseeable things that you never could have imagined and never would have wished. Our prayer teams would love to pray with you about these things or anything at all, but let's come to the table as we continue in our worship.